All right, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. Last week we finished 1 Thessalonians, and now we're going to pick up where we left off in the Gospel of John, and this will take us into Easter and a little bit beyond. If using one of the Blue Chair Bibles, it's on page 904. And as you turn there, I want to talk about a flavor of false teaching that seems to pop its head up every generation, every 20 or so years. And it's this idea that Jesus was the victim in the crucifixion story. Now, nowadays, this normally takes two forms. Number one, Jesus as political victim. This view is that Jesus was a victim of the Roman and Jewish political powers. He was killed as a populist political leader, and later Christians turned this into the traditional view to cover our bases. You tend to see this stuff in History Channel documentaries or those magazines that just happen to come out right around Easter telling you the real story of Christianity. The second version of this false teaching is that Jesus is the victim of what some have called divine child abuse. And the idea is that Jesus stepped in and took the punch that we deserve from an angry God. Now this one can use a little more Bible language, and it usually leads to a universalism that Jesus didn't really need to die, he just needed to be our example of what a good life is. Both of these are wrong in their different ways and for various reasons. But in one way, they are wrong in the same way. This idea that Jesus was a victim of the crucifixion, that the crucifixion happened to him. That he was either a victim of the political powers or the victim of an angry God. One of the unique parts of our passage today is that it demonstrates that this idea of Jesus' victim could not be further from the truth. The picture of Jesus in the first part of John chapter 18 is of Jesus in perfect sovereign control of the situation and as a willing sacrifice to save sinners. So if you're following along in the outline provided in your bulletin, you're going to see our big idea this morning is this. Being in sovereign control of all circumstances, Jesus willingly went to the cross to die to save us. So let's start John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. We're going to see Jesus was sovereignly in control. Follow along verses 1 to 3 as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches 
and weapons. So verse 18 begins by telling us after he spoke the words of John chapter 17, Jesus went to a garden that was outside of the city. And we're told in verse 1 that there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now in verses 2 and 3, it switches to Judas's view of these events. And what we learn is that Judas was familiar with this place, that in fact Jesus and his disciples often met in this garden. And because of this knowledge, Judas gathers some soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and Pharisees to go and capture Jesus. Now, how do these details point us to the sovereignty of Jesus? If Jesus is God, and that is the message of the Bible, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that Judas is going to have some soldiers and him come and look for him. Now, if you know that was going to happen, and you didn't want them to find you, you probably wouldn't go to the place you always went. In fact, one commentator notes that in one sense, what Jesus does here is creates an ideal venue for his capture. It's at night. It's away from the city. Remember, Jesus was popular on Palm Sunday. If he wanted to, he could start a riot and escape. He could also go somewhere that he'd never been before and not have Judas know exactly where he is. This is not the actions of someone who doesn't know what's going on and who isn't in control of the situation. Jesus makes it perfect circumstances for his capture. Intentionally. And I want you to see that throughout this whole part of the passage is the intentionality of Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus willingly goes. He is not forced to do anything in any of these verses. Even down to the fact that he picks their normal spot to go. It's at this point where Judas comes and finds Jesus and he has the officers and the soldiers with him. And in verses 4 to 8, we see this interaction between Jesus and the soldiers. Follow along as I read. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So, they asked him, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. What I want you to see in these verses is who's actually in charge. At the beginning in verse 4, what is assumed in verses 1 to 3, John states explicitly. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. 
John is very clear. Jesus knows what is going to happen, and because of that knowledge, he acts in the way that he acts in the following chapters. He doesn't run away. In fact, he initiates conversation with the soldiers. He walks up to these people who are armed with weapons, who are trained military people, and he asks them the simple question, what do you want? He is not scared of them. He's not waiting for them to come to him. He initiates with them. Again, who's in control? I'll give you a hint. It's not the soldiers. And we get this picture in verse 6 that when Jesus said, I am he, he, he doesn't hide it. This is not his I am Spartacus moment. He's like, you're looking for Jesus? I'm here. I'm right here. But when he says this, we read in verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I want to acknowledge there's some debate as to what is happening here. Is this Jesus sort of flexing his, his power muscle and, and he causes them, because he is the Son of God, to fall to the ground? It's possible. It's also possible that the sheer shock of his candidness with them, of not trying to hide, not trying to run away, caused them to sort of be startled. Either way, what you must see in this is that their actions speak better than they know. This idea of drawing back and falling to the ground is in some ways an action of humility and worship, which is what they should be giving to Jesus. And whether they know it or not, their body gives a message and speaks better than they know that to approach the Son of God is something that should be done in humility and worship. But again, either way, what we must see is Jesus' control of this situation. These soldiers are not going to take him without him being willing to go. In fact, this reminds us of Matthew's account of the same story. Matthew records that Jesus says that he could call down an army of angels and end the whole thing. In all of this, you need to see Jesus in sovereign control of the situation. In fact, at the end of verse 8, I love that, again, to, to demonstrate his control, Jesus orders the soldiers around. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Now again, you're approached by a band of soldiers with weapons. Are you going to start barking out orders? And the great part is they obey it. <laughs> In these verses, you need to see the sovereignty of Jesus as he goes to the cross. And related to that, as we see in verse 8 to 9, we see his sovereignty in keeping his promises. Again, let me read verse 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. 
This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. This promise is from John chapter 17, verse 12. And as we've talked about before, and and specifically last week, this idea of the power of God to keep a promise. Our God is a God who keeps his promise. Why? Because he is the sovereign God of the universe. Jesus could make a promise, and he could actually keep it. Again, through this, you see Jesus in control, sovereignly overseeing everything that is happening. And similar to that sovereignty in the next part of the passage, we see his willingness. Let's look at verses 10 to 11, where Jesus willingly accepted his salvation mission. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, in stereotypical boldness, takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, a man named Malchus. Now, it's worth noting that why are we given Malchus's name? And one possibility, I think is a very good possibility, is that if you wanted to, Malchus was still around when John was written. And you could go talk to Malchus about what happened. He was an eyewitness to what happened. We see this, Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 15 in regards to the resurrection. There were eyewitnesses Go talk to them. And perhaps Malchus became a believer and was a member at the Jerusalem church there. And if you wanted questions about this, you could go and ask him. It's a part of the Bible throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament, of saying, look, there are eyewitnesses that you can talk to who saw this. But more important than that is to see Jesus' response to Peter's actions. Again, if Jesus was just a political victim, he probably would have said, good job, Peter, now John, you get the other guy. (laughs) Or, in the chaos that ensued, he could have run away. But we know from other parts of the Bible that Jesus actually takes the time to heal Malchus's ear. Does that sound like a victim to you? Jesus takes care of one of the people that's coming to arrest him. Is Jesus running away from the cross or is he steadfastly going to the cross? And we see Jesus' willingness in his response. Look again at verse 11 after denouncing the need for violence, for fighting with weapons against this, Jesus shows us that this is a part of the mission from the Father that he has willingly 
accepted. Verse 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It reminds us of, again, what Matthew records of what Jesus says. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We see the humble submission to the mission of the Father. Not merely because in some way the Father was stronger than the Son. It's not because Jesus looked at the situation, well, I better submit or else I'm going to be in more trouble. No, he willingly takes the mission of the cross. He understands that he came to die. That as Mark records, chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross was not an accident. The cross was not plan B. The cross was not later Christians saying, oh man, Jesus died, but he wasn't really supposed to, so let's change it and make it look like and reverse engineer the whole story. It just shows great ignorance of the Bible. That throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, we see Jesus resolute to willingly die for sinners. Jesus willingly died for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins and have the hope of eternal life. If the first two parts of this passage speak to Jesus' attitude toward the cross, the last part in verses 12 to 14 speak to what was accomplished at the cross and how Jesus saved us. Verses 12 to 14 will also work as a bridge to the next part of the passage where we really get into the trial of Jesus. But we see Jesus in sovereign control of the situation. We see his willingness to die for God's people. But in the last part of our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus died as our substitute. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The soldiers take Jesus in front of the Jewish leaders and will interact more with Annas and Caiaphas in later weeks. But for our purposes today, we need to understand that Caiaphas was high priest. And verse 14 refers back to an event that John records 
back in chapter 11. So I want to read the summary here, and then I want to go back and get some more details from John chapter 11. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Earlier in the year, Caiaphas had been used by God to prophesy about Jesus. Even though, with all the data we have, Caiaphas was not a believer and never was. But God used him to speak better than he knew. So that's another theme that we see in this passage. Just as the soldiers did better than they knew, here Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. Let me read you from John chapter 11, verses 49 to 52. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad." For our purposes today, what I want you to see is that what Caiaphas thought he was saying was that it would be politically smart or beneficial that Jesus would die. That he believed it would be expedient that Jesus would die instead of the rest of the people in Israel. In John 11, when Caiaphas talks about the people perishing, he's thinking of the Romans coming in and slaughtering any rioters, which was a strong possibility. But in using this language of better that we put this rebellion down now than the Romans come in and slaughter all of us, What Caiaphas speaks here when he says that one man should die for the people, what he is thinking of in the political realm, we know and John knows and God is communicating to us that Jesus died for us in the sense of being our substitute. Jesus was more than just a good teacher. He was more than just a role model for us. Because the problem is we don't just need to get better. We need to be made new. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for us to pay the penalty of sin, that through his death on the cross we are given his righteousness and holiness so that we can be reconciled to God and that through being our substitute he paid the way for us to have eternal life. We didn't need a renovation. We needed a new heart. We needed a savior, not just 
a teacher. So in that way, Caiaphas was right. It was very good. It was very good that one man, Jesus, should die for the people. Because without Jesus dying for us, we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot live a life of holiness. Apart from Jesus, we are rebels and enemies of God with a debt that we cannot pay. A debt of sin that leads to death, that leads to judgment. But the Bible is clear. What Jesus was doing was not just showing us what sacrificial love looks like. That's true. But the cross is more than that. The cross is Jesus taking my place, taking your place, paying for your sins, paying the debt that you owed that you could not pay. And in being our substitute, made new life possible by grace through faith. 1 Peter 3.18 communicates this same way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. When Jesus dies as our substitute and not just as our role model, we are saved. We're saved from perishing, we're reconciled to God, and we have the guaranteed hope of eternal life. A couple points of application as we close this morning. Even in his arrest and death, Jesus demonstrates his sovereignty. One of the unique contributions of this passage is the overwhelming evidence that of Jesus' sovereignty over the events leading up to his crucifixion. The cross was not an accident, but the actions of a sovereign God to save sinners. There was a plan. God was not passive in bringing salvation. He didn't say, well, I guess this is the best I've got to work with. God was in sovereign control and intentionally working in history to save us. Number two, Jesus shows his love for us that while we were sinful rebels, he intentionally and willingly went to the cross. It's important to see the willingness of Jesus to die. Jesus did not go kicking and screaming. We see in other parts of the Bible that he was in distress about what was going to happen. But what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. And for us, we need to see the great love that God has for us. Romans 5.8 a familiar verse. There's a reason it's familiar. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You are loved. You are loved so much that the Son of God came to earth and willingly died for you. 
so that by his grace and through faith in him, you could be saved. Number three, in his death, Jesus is our substitute, bearing our sin and guilt so that we could be forgiven and made righteous, reconciled to God. Christianity is more than living a better life. Jesus was not a political leader. Because of our sin, we don't need just a little bit more. We need new life and new hearts. We didn't need Jesus to add just a few extra holy points to put us over the top. Jesus, I only need 10% more and I'm there. Jesus took our place. He took the punishment we justly deserved. Jesus didn't just give us the extra 20 bucks we needed. He paid the whole thing. And the reality is you could never have paid it. It is only through Jesus as our substitute, paying the full price of the wrath of God, that we are saved and reconciled to God and have the guaranteed hope of eternal life because the price has been paid. Jesus was not a victim of bad circumstances or the victim of a rage-filled God. Jesus willingly endured the cross so that he could give those who trust in him forgiveness, reconciliation, and eternal life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that in this passage we see the sovereign activity of you sending your son to be our savior, of his sovereignty over every circumstance, of his willingness out of his love for us to die as our substitute. And we thank you that you sent your son to be our savior so that we could be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to you, and have the hope of eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite those who are helping with communion to come forward at this time.